0: Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Well, they say what goes up must come down. Of course, the question tonight is, where is that exactly? And when will it come down? And by the way, how will it come down? The it? Of course, a spy balloon. The Pentagon refusing to say whether they're considering shooting down what sure looks like a Chinese spy balloon floating high above some pretty sensitive sites in this country. But officials telling CNN they haven't ruled it out either. Meanwhile, this balloon, which is the size, by the way, of three school buses, is just meandering along thousands of feet up in the sky. It was spotted twice on Wednesday over Montana and twice over Missouri today, including in Columbia, Missouri, this very afternoon, where this exclusive footage was shot. Now, it's flying about 60,000 feet up, about 18,000 feet higher than a commercial airplane does. And now the Pentagon says there's another Chinese spy balloon that is currently somewhere over Latin America. We'll talk about what the heck is going on in the skies tonight. And here to help us figure all of this out, CNN's Tom Foreman and military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton. So glad to have both of you here. Let me begin with you, Tom, at the magic wall, because where has this balloon been, and where is it going?
1: Well, if we trust what the military thinks about it, where it's been was China flying over the Aleutian Islands, coming in over Canada, and then drifting down in here to Montana, where we had these sightings that you mentioned a minute ago. Of course, sensitive area because there are missile facilities up there. I used to live in South Dakota here where there are missile facilities. And, and now, sighted down here around Missouri. Last we heard, maybe somewhere around St. Louis. So, where is it going? That's a great question. If it's being purely pushed by the jet stream, which travels about 110 miles per hour, if that's what it's doing, and if it's keeping pace with that in any sense, then you might say that if it traveled along this predicted route, that it might be right now somewhere between Nashville and Louisville, Kentucky. That's just a guess on math. The math could be completely wrong. The winds can change, the speed can change, and how much the wind is reacting, the balloon is reacting to that can also change. But the idea is that if it continued on this path, it would reach the coast over here near the outer banks. Obviously, it could be further south, a little bit further north, but that's where the jet stream is tending to push it. And at that speed, what, nine, 10 hours, something like that, from where we last had a sighting of it, that is no guarantee whatsoever. But that's where it might be now. And that's where it was making its way there, Laura.
0: So what exactly do we know about this balloon? I'm sure people have an image of what they think is happening and what it looks like. We've seen some images, but what do we know about this balloon, Tom?
1: Well, as you noted, it's, it's called the size of three buses. A little confusing there because they may be just be talking about the overall size of the balloon. The balloons that NASA does that are like this in terms of, of high performance like this are made of uh, polyethylene, basically no th- thicker than a sandwich bag. They're filled with helium, typically. Some of them are made to stay up for a very long time. And they can lift several thousand pounds. If you're doing this and controlling it for scientific purposes, eventually what you would do is you would release the balloon. It would let the helium out, separate from the payload, which would drop by parachute, back down to Earth. That's how you would retrieve your equipment if you wanted to. That's what we know about the balloon. We know it's visible to the naked eye, even though, as you noted, it's way up there It's high enough up around, you know, 11 miles up or so that you can see it if the lighting is just right, if it's bouncing off it just right. It's in an area where I'll tell you, you can't survive. I can't survive. If you're not in a pressure suit or something, way too cold, way too little oxygen, but a possible threat if airplanes went through the general area, although they're, again, as you noted, much lower than that in a common sense. But when you don't know what it is, And you don't know when it might start coming down obviously a lot of safety there that's what we know about it other than that a lot of questions about exactly Mm. what it was doing here and where it's going to wind up
0: colonel late let me bring you in here because one of the big questions what we do know about it is that it's in our airspace Mm -hmm. and there have been a lot of calls to make sure it's no longer in our airspace and bring it down should that happen
2: well, Laura, what you really want to do is you want to gain the intelligence value that you can from this particular balloon because you know that there are sensors on there. You want to prove your case, if you're the United States government, you want to prove your case that this actually is a surveillance balloon. Yeah. It's one thing to make the assertion, it's quite another to say, look, we have the proof, we have the sensors. We know these sensors communicate with this base station in China or whatever the case may be. And that's the kind of thing that you want to have because once you have that, then you can take measures to mitigate these kinds of uh, systems as they come in. And you can also use this as a way in which to, frankly, embarrass China in the, on the diplomatic front.
0: And so the idea of taking it down has been called for. That, that seems to imply destroying it out of the airspace. But you're saying it'd be more prudent from the intelligence standpoint to have it come down, to have it intact, to be able to study and know exactly what it is, what it's been transmitting, and its capabilities.
2: That's exactly right, because what you want is a controlled descent, one that you control, one where, if you're really lucky, you get into the data stream that controls the balloon and make it land on your command, not on the command of the controller in China. And when you do that, you bring it down easily. uh, You can examine it. You can say, okay, this is what these pieces do. This is how it works. This is where these things, in essence, you're reverse engineering it.
0: I wonder if that's one of the reasons we heard from the Brigadier General Patrick Ryder, who talked about the balloon. having the ability to maneuver, but wasn't very specific to go on beyond that about who it was and how it's done. Maybe it's the idea of partially the unknown, but maybe partially not wanting to divulge too much information. But as you're talking about it, obviously just the jet stream we've already seen, at some point, if it continues along this path, it will no longer be above our airspace and in the control and the domain of the United States. Is there a point in time where they're going to have to make a decision whether to destroy it or wait for it to land controlled.
2: Yeah, if they want to look at it from a purely legalistic standpoint, it's much better if you bring it down on your territory or in your territorial waters. So that's what you really want to do. You want to bring it down in a way that you can control every single last aspect of it. It's certainly technically possible to bring it down over the ocean, but then it becomes a bit legally questionable when you've got it in international waters as opposed to on your own territory or in your own waters.
0: Let me go to you, Tom, on that point. You've been following along the trajectory of this and sort of the flight path, so to speak, of this. Um, Balloon. Is there a particular area where it could be brought down, perhaps in a controlled manner, or really to minimize any disruption to what would be on the ground?
1: Well, safety on the ground, the places to do that have already passed. If you look at Mm. this path and you look at basically where the U.S. population is, look, the density is much, much less out here where it was. It's been moving over more dense areas. So the idea of just dropping it here, if you're worried about risk, that's not a great place for it. And I will note, uh, I always love having Colonel Layton with us because he always has great insights into all of this. But when you talk about this area right here, let's say the Outer Banks here, really the, the part that is the territorial waters, if we put it in statute miles, is only about 14 miles. It's not far. Mm-hmm. If you want to drop it right at that point, I have no doubt the U.S. military could take it out of the sky right when it cleared the, the, the safety zone there, as long as they had no boats in the water there. But it's still a narrow band there, and I don't know how you guarantee that it doesn't sink when you drop it. So the problem is there has to be, as the colonel suggested, you either have to somehow take over control of it and trigger it to do this the way it's supposed to do it, which is tricky, or you have to try to shoot it down in some fashion that either doesn't bring it down dramatically or quickly, or you just take your chances and you drop it here in that little narrow band and hope that that works. And I will point out, my finger here is making a band that is much, much, much wider than that 14 miles would be.
0: Real quick, I know we want to get to one more thing, but before, while I have you here, Colonel Layton, um, let me ask you, there's a, it's already covered a great part of the United States of America and presumably has gone over things that are highly sensitive in nature. Um, what do you make of the idea? of Is there a way for us to be less vulnerable to what it could have already seen?
2: Yeah, one of the things that you do, if you know it's coming, uh, you can certainly change your communications pattern. You can hide things. Uh, For example, let's say you have planes on a runway and you don't want the adversary to see those planes. You can camouflage them. You can uh, put them in other places. You can do a lot of different things like that. But if you have no warning, then, of course, the intelligence picture becomes much less advantageous to you and much more advantageous to the adversary.
0: A really important point. I want to discuss more with the international implications here of all of this. Fareed Zakaria, host of Fareed Zakaria GPS, joins us now. Fareed, I'm glad you're here and you've been hearing the conversation, of course, and one of the things that was not shocking to people is the idea that there were, the Chinese were spying in some part or that there was a possibility of spying. Frankly, the U.S. and China um, have been known to spy on one another over the course of time. So what is it about this that is, makes this so different?
3: Well, it's a very good question. I think the discussion was fascinating about the mechanics of all this. But as you say, if you step back and you ask yourself the big picture, this feels a little bit like that line in Casablanca where we are suddenly shocked, shocked to discover that the Chinese are spying on us. Um, of course, the Chinese are spying on us. By the way, we spy on them uh, or probably a lot more than they spy on us. Or we, we, we are, The National Security Agency has probably the biggest budget for all this kind of uh, stuff around the world, um, the Chinese also have military satellites uh, going around, you know, the United States constantly. Uh, probably have all the information that they are looking for. You were talking about sensitive sites. It's highly unlikely that there is something in Montana that has not been photographed by Chinese military satellites. There are some marginal increases you get because the balloon is lower, but you know, these balloons are very crude. I mean, this is stuff that was used during the French Revolution, during the American Civil War. This is not exactly cutting-edge technology. It does have a few uh, advantages. But for the most part, the Chinese do, do this routinely. We do it routinely. The r- The really interesting question is, why should something like this cause this kind of collective freakout, particularly on the right where people seem, you know, to be willing to get into a conversation about conflict and war uh, over a balloon. Uh, And then the administration finds itself having to react and cancel a trip uh, by the secretary of state. Uh, all, All over something, as I say, we know they do. We do it as well.
0: Well, I mean, the it is visible to the eye. So perhaps that's part of the reason why people are now more aware of it. Or you've got people actually, everyday civilians, now seeing what has probably been known to others. But there is something about perhaps the point being that they don't care if it's seen. And what does that actually say about how they feel about the relationship with this country? But there's also, you mentioned technology, And I agree. I mean, depending on what's in this balloon, not the big, you know, most highbrow level of communication technology. Senator Mitt Romney did today, though, talk about TikTok, talked about that as being a bigger source to be concerned about than a balloon. In fact, he says a a big Chinese balloon in the sky and millions of Chinese TikTok balloons on our phones. Let's shut them all down. Is TikTok ought it be ought it be a bigger concern?
3: Yeah, I think that's a much more interesting problem. Uh, what exactly is the vulnerability? What what kind of data are they getting? Can that can that data be uh, returned to China? Is there a way to create servers in the United States where uh, the data is stored here and it cannot be transferred to China? You know, I'm a little reluctant to shut you. Know, the United States believes in uh, freedom of speech and Uh, let's say, would TikTok to be uh, uh, transferred to American ownership, would that solve the problem? But yeah, there's something I think that's very real. It's very new. It's uh, a kind of cyber war or cyber intelligence that we don't quite know how to handle. And I would be all for a, a serious investigation into it. But by the way, Laura, I still don't believe that these kind of things should shut down communication between the United States and China. you know, the Secretary of State of the United States does not go to China to meet his counterparts as a favor to China. Uh, He does it in order to secure the interests of the United States, to clarify the United States' position in the world, to achieve some degree of uh, stability and guardrails in that relationship, and to preserve peace between the two largest economies in the world, and increasingly the two largest military powers in the world. It seems like Uh, It is being treated like some kind of gift that is now being withdrawn. And I think that's the wrong way to think about international diplomacy. We're engaged in this precisely because we have problems with the Chinese.
0: I want to read for you a statement on what um, China has said about it, just so you can. It's it's from the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson saying, It is a civilian airship used for research, mainly meteorological purposes. The airship deviated far from its planned course. The Chinese side regrets the unintended entry of the airship into U.S. airspace. You can go to flag the idea of the word regret being used um, by the spokesperson does that does that surprise you? The statement that was made, given all that you said, and the idea of not believing it was in the interests of the United States, frankly, for Blinken to even cancel the trip.
3: Well, it's difficult to know what was what is going on there. The Chinese uh, in routinely, as I say, do engage in espionage. It's quite possible that this is uh, this is in fact a spy balloon. It's possible, uh, as some have suggested, it may have had uh, dual uh, purposes. Uh, what I'm pretty sure of is is that it's not some kind of highly sophisticated new step. The very fact that it's veered so far off course tells us that it's not particularly well controlled at this point. So I I think that more than anything else, this whole episode has revealed to me the degree of uh, anxiety and insecurity, uh, particularly on the right where there is a kind of paranoia uh, about about what is going on in China, what the Chinese can do. Uh, And it's very troubling because, look, this is a this is a very, very serious relationship that we need to be able to approach in a way that secures America's interests, preserves the peace, make sure that we deter China. Uh, And it doesn't help to have a kind of collective freak out over a balloon.
0: Well, until we know what it is, I wonder if it is just a balloon or not. We'll have to wait and see, Fred. But we'll see what information well, it comes is a balloon in.
4: for sure. It's a balloon. It definitely we don't know is a balloon.
0: What kind of <laughs> You're right. It is a balloon. It is absolutely a balloon. Now, what it can do in the capacity, we'll have to defer to um, those who are specialized. But your point is very well taken about what the reaction is. Is something that maybe people don't realize is as commonplace, which says a lot about our relationship. Nice to talk to you.
3: Thank you as always.
0: Well, you might be tempted to go outside to see if you can catch a glimpse of the balloon. And Fareed's right, it is in fact a balloon. But next, we've got a man who saw it for himself and then caught the whole thing on camera. All eyes on the skies tonight as the nation is tracking the progress of the suspected Chinese spy balloon floating above the United States. My next guest was actually able to catch footage of the balloon as it passed over his Montana workplace. And Michael Alverson joins me now from Billings, Montana. Michael, thank you for joining us this evening. We're getting a lot out of the footage to see what actually it looked like and just how close it was for it to be visible to the naked eye. What did you do when you first saw it? And really, what did you think it was?
5: Um, At
6: first we were working on some stuff and I just so happened to glance up at the sky while we were working and I had noticed uh, what appeared to me to be kind of like the moon and then I appeared to look off to my right and notice that the moon was out clear as day and that's when it started to bring concerns to me and my coworkers at the
0: time. What were you concerned about? What did you think it was?
6: Um, at first when we saw it, it kind of had a tail on it, it seemed like, so we were kind of thinking it might have been the comet that everybody was talking about that was coming through around this time, and then it kind of just stopped and started just hovering there, and it seemed to just get bigger and get bigger as the sphere got closer to Billings, and... Uh, then we decided to bust out some binoculars and try to look at, get a closer look at it, and it appeared to be a balloon of some sort. So then we kind of just assumed that it was a weather balloon and didn't really think much more of it. So then I grabbed my camera and tried to get a good shot of it as well as I could for an iPhone and uh, decided to post it up on my media page to see if anybody, by chance in the area, knew what it could be.
0: Mm. It's, I mean, I'm so glad that you did and got footage of it as well. It's so fascinating to see. But tell me, what is around you in Billings, Montana? I mean, and I wonder how people there are reacting, because if it is a suspected spy balloon from China, many are wondering what it possibly could be seeing in your area.
7: Um,
6: I'm not really sure. There's not a whole lot around here in the Billings area. We have uh, we used to have an old military Air Force base up there up on the north ridge of Billings but it's no longer really a thing anymore. We just have the Logan International Airport right there as far as I know of anything that they'd possibly want to look into I suppose if it were to be a spy balloon.
0: Do you think that it should have been shot down or taken down in some way?
6: Um, yeah I was hearing that they had a good opportunity to possibly shoot it down when it was more out in the middle of nowhere in Montana but they decided not to go with it, and I feel like I'm bad of an idea to try to get a better, closer look at what we're trying to see in the sky. I suppose.
0: Do you? Are people feeling in the in your area, in your community? Are they reacting to the fact that it has it was in and around the um, the skies around you? Has there been a sentiment about how people feel about the fact that it was this close?
6: Yeah, I definitely feel like it's kind of similar to like I guess a house break in. I suppose it's a foreign object flying into uh, United States air airspace.
0: I mean, I wonder what
6: source of uncomfort.
0: mm, Uh, I hear you. It wasn't normal. I'm sure it comes as quite a shock to think about that. And I I know you've got I think you've got some pretty major oil refineries in your area as well. I think there's three of them in the area. So I'm curious as to Um, what it would have been like if they had shot it down or had taken it down, whether there would have been some damage on the ground below or, of course, people who were in the area. But listen, I so appreciate you taking the footage, Michael, and allowing people to have a closer look and seeing what you saw in that moment. Thank you.
6: Yeah, thank you, guys.
0: Everyone, look, police departments in Florida and also Ohio showing off cruisers, unveiling them, as you see, that are wrapped in Black History Month artwork. But it happened just days after the video release showing the beating of Tyree Nichols. More in a moment. All right, everyone, check this out. This week, two police departments, one in Miami and another in Columbus, Ohio, Unveiling police cruisers that are wrapped in Black History Month artwork, the Columbus Cruiser even featuring Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote that says, "Be the peace you wish to see in the world." Mind you, the unveiling of these cruisers does come just days after the video release showing the horrific, deadly beating suffered by Tyree Nichols at the hands of five Memphis police officers. We're also learning tonight that the officer that was heard saying, quote, I hope they stomp his ass, unquote, on that video of that initial traffic stop has now been officially terminated and departmentally charged after being placed on leave this Monday. The department determining Preston Hemphill violated multiple department policies, including personal conduct and truthfulness. Now, he is the sixth officer to be fired and one other officer is on leave. And of course, five have been charged with second degree murder among other charges as well. Joining me now is CNN political commentator Karen Finney, Republican strategist Rena Shaw, and former head of intelligence for the D.C. Homeland Security Department, Donnell Harvin. I'm glad to see you all here today. Let's begin with these um, unveiling of the police cruisers um, that were wrapped in Black History Month artwork. I-, I do wonder what you make of it. Is it tone deaf? Is it something, is that a rhetorical question? What do you make of it? It's tone
8: deaf. It's absolutely tone deaf to the point of actually being offensive. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, if you I suppose you can give them the credit that they were trying to do the right thing. But it's one of those situations where if you don't know, ask. So instead of saying, hey, let's wrap our car in, you know, quotes from Martin Luther King Jr., on the heels, not only of that video, but in the middle of a national conversation, right, about the relationship between police and and communities of color. Ask, ask a community leader who's African-American, is this a good idea, is this not a good idea?
0: So if you follow that thread, I mean, the idea that if this cruiser were in rotation, of course, right, and then arrested somebody, this is the car that would be holding the person. And if that person happened to be African-American, you can see where this would be going. And I would mention, I want to hear your, your take on this now, but I mentioned that both Miami and Columbus Police Departments, they tweeted statements, by the way, about Tyree Nichols. Um, Columbus's statement, for example, says, after watch- it's the chief, Elaine Bryant, after watching the videos released of the violent arrest of Tyree Nichols from the Memphis Police Department, I am deeply heartbroken and saddened the actions of these former officers do not represent the standards we hold here at the Columbus Division of Police, our officers are trained to treat every individual with dignity and humanity. We respect our community's right to voice their frustration, and we will give them the space to do so peacefully. And talked about continuing to listen and work together to build a relationship. Miami similarly did so as well. Their chief of police, Manuel Morales, also talking about the idea of wanting to um, show support. I wonder what your take is. It's
7: certainly tone death uh, I'll try to give some deference to these police departments. These things don't happen in a week. They probably commissioned these things months ago. Sure. Uh, but certainly they could have pulled that back and waited for a better time. We've seen these type of... Uh, wrapped emergency uh, response vehicles uh, for other type of months. So breast cancer awareness and things of that nature. Uh, The problem is that I think it minimalizes particularly during Black History Month, uh, the impact and the positive uh, type of contributions that Black History Month is supposed to represent. And so to do that on the heels of Tyree uh, Tyree Nichols' death, I think it's poor taste. It's a horrible comms issue for them. Uh, And it certainly uh, I think sparks a, a conversation about rethinking what Black History Month means. Um, is it just rapping on a police vehicle? Is it being prospective and looking at what contributions can be made? Or looking backward, and I I think it's a it's a it's a bad look for law enforcement right now. And hopefully nobody does that again.
0: You know, you make a good point about particularly the how this is not the first time this is done. Even in Columbus, Ohio, they actually talked about and responded to a lot of the criticism about it, and talked about how, as part of their community engagement, they have a cruiser that is commemorating numerous holidays and events, and they have done so for LGBTQ Pride Month, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, as you mentioned. Veterans Day and the holiday season. They plan to do so more this year. But to the point that Donnell raised as well, um, Rena, there is something about the performative aspect as opposed to the understanding of what the awareness months are actually supposed to be for. Does this fall into the category of performative without going beneath the surface and then ending up with PR issues?
9: Well, what I, I think a big PR issue is with that one in Miami, the vehicle that was covered in Graphics of Africa. Not every Black American feels this connection to Africa. And to have these imagery, I felt was really confusing and, and frankly wrong. I think that was a bit of a PR uh, stunt. And and it feels wrong. When, when you look at that and you think that's performative, that is trying to make it look like we're doing something here. And what is it really doing? It's not being an ally. Allyship isn't performative. There's a whole new generation of leaders coming up that are looking at law enforcement, and they know the history, the dark history, the harmful history between Black Americans and law enforcement in this country, people who've been trusted to be agents of the law we saw take Tyree Nichols's life away from him in the most cruel way possible. And that just doesn't sit right with me, and and, and with so many other people who are non-Black. So what, what do we do now when we, again, talk about this next generation of leaders who are coming up in this era of authenticity? They want that talk and the walk to match, and they are going to call. Call people out for
0: it. I want to play for a second. I want to hear your response to that, Karen, as well. What the Miami Police Department actually said in response. Here was their video statement.
2: You know from the past we've had breast cancer, autism, military. So in keeping with the tradition, we've had a lot of officers and members come up to us and say, hey, how come we don't have one for uh, Black history? We had one for Hispanic Heritage Month. And so we said, sure, you know, we'll try to work on something and uh, reach out to the chief and see, you know, what to, you know, what to work on. This was something for us to honor uh, everyone. This had nothing to do with, uh, you know, uh, being disrespectful, being disgraceful, but this was something like a source of pride for us. And it still is.
8: Karen, what's your thought? Interesting to see who they put it out, put out to clean that up. But also, you know, on all of these things, I would say just from a communication standpoint, having doing as someone who does public affairs work speak to the community it's a lost opportunity to not talk to the community and say we want to do something special for Black History Month we want to do something for LGBTQ awareness we want to be good allies what could we do how if we you know these cruisers probably spent five ten thousand dollars what could we do with that money is there a community event that they could do to show their allyship that actually helped to build a stronger bond and a stronger relationship between the community um, and the police officers. Again, I think it's, like you say, it's performative to just do a rap when you have an opportunity to actually engage the community in the conversation. And not to be
0: outdone here, um, it's not just police departments. The IRS has weighed in on this as well, by the way. there is this tweet from the IRS criminal investigation today saying that, quote, it celebrates the rich history and impactful contributions of black Americans to our nation and around the world during hashtag Black History Month. Now, Remember, just the other day, of course, you were watching this program, I would hope, because we illuminated an issue that happened involving a study that showed that black American taxpayers are three times as likely as um, their white counterparts to be audited by the IRS. But I want to be clear, we've shown that tweet. This division that tweeted is not tied in the IRS to the algorithm that was making that happen. But, of course, the question would be the idea of the right hand and the left hand being able to know what the other's doing, And the performative versus putting substance ahead of form. A lot more to talk about. Thank you to all of you. We also have a big update in the Dallas Zoo saga. Police now arresting a suspect in connection with habitat tampering. But now in New York, a Eurasian eagle owl has escaped the Central Park Zoo after its exhibit was vandalized. Those stories are next. Tonight, a 24-year-old man in Texas is facing at least eight charges in connection with the tampering of animal habitats at the Dallas Zoo. Davion Irvin was arrested last night and charged with six counts of animal cruelty in the suspected theft of two tamarind monkeys earlier this week. And they were later found, you may recall, safe in an abandoned building. Irvin also faces two charges of burglary in connection with the tamarinds and the tampering of the clouded leopard's enclosure. Police all say that he's linked to the tampering of the Langer monkeys' habitat as well, but has not been charged in that incident. The zoo's president speaking this afternoon.
2: It's been an unbelievable three weeks for all of us here at the zoo. And, um, you know, it's, it's unprecedented what's happened here
0: Let's talk more about what is going on at the Dallas Zoo and what has happened there. Back with me again is wildlife biologist Jeff Corwin, host of Wildlife Nation. Jeff, I'm glad to see you this Friday night. You and I have been talking since this all began, the incident after incident after incident, really after incident. And now here we have a suspect who is has been arrested after being seen at the Dallas Aquarium near animal exhibits there as well. And police believe that he may have been trying to commit another crime. What do you think is the motive or going on here?
4: It's just really insidious. And these animals have paid such a horrible price. The great news is they've captured this gentleman and he's being held, I think, on $25,000 bail. I think he's in jail right now. Um, There's also other crimes. So we're looking at the state and the local crimes in Dallas. A lot of people don't realize that since the 1900s, we've had some very strict uh, regulatory Uh, laws that are designed to protect species, especially endangered species. And when they cross county lines or into other states, that's known as the Lacey Act. That can come up with five years in prison and I think upwards to $100,000 in fines.
0: I mean, the possibilities really are far more expansive than the idea of A prank or something that was supposed to be menial in nature. I will say we don't yet have any reporting whatsoever that there is a connection to that vulture. But you raise the possibility, of course, that the investigation is likely ongoing, especially because the Dallas Zoo did say today that the staff is still, even having somebody who is a suspect and has been arrested, they're still on high alert. And I'm wondering, I mean, if this is maybe part of a larger operation, do you foresee that one person could have been responsible for the successive acts that we've seen so far?
4: Well, Laura, as we earlier had discussed, as this uh, wild story—I mean, literally a wild story—began really? a week ago—is how that it's really hard to get these animals into the the, the multi-billion-dollar black market wildlife trade. So when we find that they were um, left to their own devices, these um, tamarind monkeys, these emperor tamarin monkeys, these primates, that tells me that I don't think he knew what he was doing. But he was stealthy enough that he could get in there and get these animals out. And while we don't know what that connection is with the vulture, there seems to be some connection with these other species. That, for me, is good news, that maybe one person is the culprit behind all of this. What really upsets me, Laura, is that, what happened at the Dallas Zoo is bad enough. Again, a world-class zoo. It mm-hmm. really has devastated that incredible community of conservationists there. But we're now seeing copycat crimes in other zoos across the country.
0: I want to go there now because there is that new story tonight out of New York, and their city Central Park Zoo officials are saying that they're trying to recapture a Eurasian eagle owl named Flacco. Apparently, he escaped last night after the stainless steel mesh of his exhibit was cut. Um, and this is, I mean, it one thing for the Dallas Zoo and you see the concentration of um, different events happening. There was the one in Louisiana. There was the missing squirrel monkeys. And now in New York City, you mentioned the copycat aspect of this. I mean, are people becoming emboldened to see if they can try to accomplish something as well? And you got to wonder what the end game will be in these instances as well.
4: I think there definitely is that sort of underlying component here of someone wanting to try to get away with this. We often see this with crimes like this. We see the the copycat echo effect. In this case, this beautiful species. I mean, the, the Eurasian eagle owl is absolutely, absolutely spectacular. It's as big as an eagle, even though it's an owl, hence its name, eagle owl. The only thing that's the saving grace here, Laura, is that this is a species that can thrive. They're incredibly hardy. They survive from Siberia to North Africa. So these vicious cold spells we're having in New England and New York, I'm confident this owl will survive these elements until they can get into a position to secure this animal, this owl, and get them back to the zoo. Again, they found um, that its enclosure had been vandalized, had been tampered with. One note I want to tell people, a lot of people are so worried about um, this eagle owl. And millions of people flock, literally flock to Central Park every year to see the incredible birds that are there. If you see this owl, you want to give it space. We don't want to push it off into traffic or harm's way. Once they have this animal secure, they will grab it and put it back into its home where it belongs at the zoo. But but the saving grace is that this is an owl that lives in a cold environment so he should survive the, the, the cold, harsh conditions of the Big Apple.
0: Well, as you say, you know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. They say it's up to you, New York. New York, we'll see if he lives true for that particular um, old adage to actually be applicable. Thank you so much, Chef Corwin. I certainly hope that this is a lesson, although for other zoos around the area as well, that if people are trying to duplicate and be copycats, that it's not just Dallas, it's not just New York, it's not just Louisiana. There has to be precautions almost in a national way. It's a sad testament to what's happening right now. Thank you, Jeff Corwin, nice talking to you.
4: Thanks, Mark. Two two hoots to that.
0: (laughs) I like it. What I don't like, and many of you don't like as well, I'm sure is the Arctic air that's blasting through the Northeast with gusty winds bringing temperatures as low as 32 degrees below zero. The cold's so dangerous, New York City is enacting code blue. A blast of Arctic air is blanketing the entire northeastern part of the country tonight. Temperatures plunging to dangerous levels, forcing many schools to even close today. Emergency plans are activated in many cities, especially to encourage homeless people to move into shelters. It is so bitter cold. A new national record for the lowest wind chill temperature has likely been recorded at Mount Washington in New Hampshire. Get this, negative 108 degrees Fahrenheit. Just about three hours ago, negative 108. The Arctic cold front moved into Oswego, New York, overnight, packing ferocious winds and snow squalls and triggering thunder snow. Take a look at this photo posted by the National Weather Service. The Arctic blast causing what's called a steam devil to form this afternoon over Lake Champlain in Vermont. The agency says it's also known as a a cold air funnel, which forms when Arctic air passes over a warm body of water. Now all of New England is under a winter chill alert. Reporter Adriana Sanchez of our affiliate WMTW in Portland, Maine, demonstrating just how dangerous the conditions really are. My scarf, my hair, the winds here in Maine, at least in Southern Maine, are really intense. And we did do a science experiment this morning. Let me show you. We wet a pair of sweatpants that we found and it took less than half an hour for them to get frozen like this, really showing that if you get a piece of clothing wet, your gloves, your hat, pants, a shirt wet, you need to go inside and change immediately. It could be really dangerous for you. You might get frostbite. Well, from frozen clothes in Maine to frozen pasta in Vermont.
8: In the winter, there's nothing like hot buttered pasta. It's five below Fahrenheit and 20 below Celsius. I mean, it doesn't really get a lot colder than that. Not in Vermont anyway. (laughs) Pasta
0: outdoors in the winter? Well, look, there is good news for everyone. The Arctic blast is moving out of the region beginning on Sunday. U.S. officials, everyone, not ruling out shooting down that Chinese spy balloon over the U.S. We've got the very latest on that next. Well, what a week it's been. And tonight we're going to break down all of the top stories of the week. There's the, as you know, the suspected Chinese spy balloon flying over the United States. Officials telling CNN they have not ruled out the possibility of shooting it down. Plus, President Biden taking a bit of a victory lap over the jobs numbers that came in, claiming it proves critics of his policies are dead wrong. Also this week, loved ones saying their final goodbyes to 29-year-old Tyree Nichols, who died after a brutal police beating in Memphis. His grieving mother pleading for action on police reform. So what are lawmakers going to do? And more lies from Republican Congressman George Santos. The latest has to do with now a Broadway show. Even the great white way can't escape this. We'll break down the new reporting and what it all means for the GOP. But let's start with the story we're all talking about this evening, the Chinese spy balloon flying over the country tonight. CNN's Alex Marquardt has the latest.
10: Tonight, U.S. officials tell CNN the U.S. has not ruled out shooting down the Chinese spy balloon once there's no risk to civilians below. But Secretary of State Antony Blinken telling reporters that China's flagrant violation of U.S. sovereignty forced him to postpone his trip to Beijing. I made
2: clear that the presence of this surveillance balloon in U.S. airspace is a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law that it's an irresponsible act, and that the PRC's decision to take this action on the eve of my planned visit is detrimental
10: to the substantive discussions that we were prepared to have. It would have been the administration's highest level trip to China so far. The State Department said that the rare Chinese apology today and their claim that the balloon was for civilian purposes floating off course did not change their mind. I can only imagine what the reaction would be in China if they were on uh, the other end. And what this has done uh, is created the conditions um, that undermine the purpose of the trip. The balloon is flying at 60,000 feet up in the atmosphere, equipped with solar panels for power and a surveillance payload. The Pentagon says steps have been taken to protect sensitive intelligence targets beneath it on the ground, which may include silos of Minutemen 3 nuclear ballistic missiles scattered across Montana. U.S. defense officials have been tracking the balloon closely for several days, debating whether to shoot it down and advising President Joe Biden it would be too dangerous. We assess that it does not pose a risk to people on the ground as it currently is traversing the continental United States. And so out of an abundance of caution, Uh, cognizant of the potential impact to civilians on the ground uh, from a debris field. Uh, Right now we're going to continue to monitor and review options. Satellite and other data indicate the balloon may have originated in central China, with weather patterns pushing it out over the Pacific Ocean into Canada and down into the United States, where it has been crossing Montana and into Missouri. With current conditions, it could continue east and enter the Atlantic Ocean from North Carolina. It can maneuver itself and has changed course, currently floating over the central U.S., officials say, while offering little more on its precise location. The public certainly has the ability to look up in the sky and, and see where the balloon is. And they have, curiously training eyes and cameras towards the skies.
11: What planet is that?
10: Pilots have also reported seeing the balloon as they fly by at high altitude, reporting balloon sightings to air traffic control. Unless this Chinese balloon is shot down or somehow brought down, the Pentagon does believe it will remain in U.S. airspace for the next few days. They will continue to watch it float across this country, and they say they will keep their options open. Meanwhile, back here at the State Department, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, is saying that he will reschedule his trip to Beijing when conditions allow. What those conditions are precisely, they will not say. But it is clear, Laura, that the temperature between the U.S. and China needs to come down. Dramatically, Laura.
0: To weigh in on this story and a lot more, I want to bring in former White House senior director Nayara Huck, senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum Carrie Sheffield, and former head of intelligence at the DC Homeland Security Department Danelle Harvin. I want to talk about all we're seeing right now today. Um, Let me begin with you here, Nayara, because you used to work at the State Department, and I'm wondering. How you explain this particular move by um, the Chinese, if it in in fact was intentional and not some inadvertent floating balloon that got off course, why now? I mean, this was a critical time where you're going to
11: have Secretary of State Blinken go. Why now? Mm. This may not have been their intent, and it's something they have done before, to have spy balloons up in the air, and they can actually fly 30,000 feet higher than most of our capabilities to intercept them, like the uh, the different aircraft that we have. So there is an advantage that they have by having these balloons up there. but you're not supposed to have them be visible to the naked eye. Mm. And by, you know, regular old person in Billings, Montana, that eliminates the plausible deniability of, And you know, suddenly when spying becomes public, it forces someone like Blinken to publicly respond as opposed to the diplomatic maneuvers that could have happened behind closed doors. This visit was very important for the Chinese as well. The United States just is, was walking into this with some strength, having just announced four new military maneuvers and engagements in the Philippines. Uh, The Biden administration has been very strong in the defense of Taiwan. So the Chinese were hoping to have some tampering down of tensions as well. Unfortunately, that conversation is not going to happen right now as we're dealing with a dirigible in our airspace. You know, in that point, I mean, um, Carrie, we think about
0: how it's being used now and talk about the idea of what it looks like for the administration to be aware of this, to not shoot it down. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of nuance in this discussion as to the why we heard earlier from Colonel um, Tedrick Layton about, well, maybe they want to have it intact and have a coming down that's more natural to be able to confirm exactly what it is and maybe use it to our advantage. Um, But when you look at this from a political perspective, It's one thing to have it happen to impact diplomacy. What's it doing on the ground here in terms of how Biden is viewed?
12: Well, he's viewed with weakness. Um, I do believe this was a deliberate move by the Chinese. I think Nara brings up a great point that the United States... Was having a robust position with a lot of positions of strength, which was happening in the Philippines and elsewhere in the South China Sea. So I do think this was a move to say to the Chinese, by the Chinese, to say, we actually want to humiliate the United States a little bit. And now we have word of a second balloon that's heading towards South America. I don't think this is any accident. And we have heard from the former chief of staff of the NSC in the Trump administration, Fred Flights, that we actually do have the capability to intercept this balloon, to bring it down safely, and to contain it for intelligence purposes. I think that's what we should do moving forward.
0: Well, you you know, it's interesting uh, as to what our capacities are. And obviously, um, one would think that there are ways to do so. But we're looking at maybe from a Hollywood perspective of what you've seen in the movie and in intercept and think, oh, surely that happens every day without all the nuances politically that might be a consideration for the existing administration as well. But there's a lot more happening, even aside from this balloon. This is a time when, thank- frankly, tensions have been heightened um, over the several years, especially this last couple of weeks with the death of Tyree Nichols and the administration likely to focus on this in the upcoming State of the Union address. Um, I-, I wonder what you make of the of where we are right now, Donnell, and the ability of the government to legislate a solution to what has been a decades, if not century long problem.
7: The ability is always there. Because we have a functioning government, it's but the, the will, appetite, it's yeah. the willpower, mm-hmm. and we've seen after numerous times, family, uh, public call for uh, police reforms, uh, various reforms. And they just really don't happen. Um, many of these law enforcement agencies are large and they get federal dollars. Um, that should be used uh, as some type of indictment, in, in, inducement for them to reform. Uh, not all police departments in this country actually have body-worn cameras or BWCs. Uh, and we can imagine if they didn't have a BWC uh, during this case, what type of stories would they make up? We've already seen them make up some stories that was re uh, that, that was, um uh, the, less than accurate. The, less than accurate, let's just say. And so the, the other thing is, you know, we have such a divided Congress. We have Congress people walking into Congress with uh, lapel pins that have AR 15s on it, right? So that really doesn't speak to uh, a Congress that's interested currently in protecting health and welfare of the American public.
0: Well, they would argue, of course, it's about the Second Amendment in part, and they're trying, I remember Congresswoman Lauren Boebert speaking about this in part about whether to be able to bring guns on the floor, et cetera. But let me ask you, I mean, the Republicans are in the majority in the House. Um, technically, even with a slim majority, they technically would have the power to push measures. Um, There is a slim majority, obviously, for Democrats in the Senate. So whether it gets to Biden's desk or not is a different scenario. But I'm wondering, does the Republican Party have an appetite for the type of reform that's being called for? We certainly heard from Republican incumbents talking about how difficult and saddened they were to see this video.
12: Yeah, the video is is heartbreaking. I mean, this man should not be dead. I mean, he should be alive today. And these these cops need to be held accountable and prosecuted. I'm glad that they've been taken off the force. But uh, Senator Tim Scott, who's a very prominent Republican, he has put forward a bill and he has called for police reforms, but unfortunately it's been the Democrats who have been obstructing him because the Democrat base, which uh, is the Black Lives Matter base, wants to defund the police. And the truth of the matter is 10,000 black lives are destroyed every year through crime. Only 20 lives are destroyed through unarmed uh, police action but the, the fact is, the vast majority of those occur when there is some sort of attack on the police. So, But disperpo- you, I'm talking I'm about 10,000. Oh, well, lives. I don't want to interrupt you, but
0: I do want yes. to understand the source of your numbers. Obviously, the platform we have is so wide that I'd like to make sure that they're accurate. The 20 number you reference versus the 10,000, I'm assuming you're talking about or t- counting in the fact that it's a disparate impact on black and brown people compared sure. to white counterparts who obviously are also engaged in criminal activity.
12: Well, Harvard found that there was no disparate impact in terms of lethal force on black versus white criminals. So that's something important to keep in mind. That was Professor Ronald Fryer from Harvard found that there was no disparate impact. What I'm talking Somebody about, though, as far as the Senate... Senate.
0: Numbers. Well, I want to finish a point, then I want to hear you have to say in the area But
12: to my point earlier, Senator Tim Scott, who is a Republican who I very much support. He has called for police reforms, but again, the Democrats are the purists here and they're not, they have rejected his reforms. So that's what I would say. And I'm, I'm sure that he would be able to find people in the House who, who could work with him on bringing some sort of reform.
0: I am still curious about the substance of the stats that you just referenced because everything we've ever read indicates the idea of the disproportionate impact on black and brown, just in terms of their numbers representation in police encounters. Um, but what do you say, Mayor? especially the notion of Um, defund the police being the substantive base of the Democratic Party, given that Biden is Never been for it, and he's the leader of the Democrats.
11: Yeah, no, no, nobody actually ran on defund the police in this last election cycle as a major candidate or any level, um, and that is certainly a conversation in progressive circles, but not a Democratic Party platform. But to to your question about numbers and data, uh, what we know from federal law enforcement data and what police departments have reported, the Washington Post has a phenomenal police killing tracker, and that shows that there have been twelve hundred black lives, uh, rather twelve hundred. Police killings in the last year alone. The majority of them have been black, disproportionately black. Um, and this is even without all police departments reporting up. Mm. I think it's important to make that distinction between police killings in of criminals um, and the police interactions with civilians and people who have not been charged with a crime and people who are killed, like Tyree Nichols, who absolutely had no indictment against him, had nothing, no warrant, had simply lost his life because he was pulled over in a traffic stop. So some of the rhetoric can get a little inflamed, and I think that data can help clarify and bring a little bit of reality to the situation, especially given the fact that we grew up having seen the ramifications of Rodney King's beating uh, and having seen George Floyd being murdered. uh, That is a legal term now because he was convicted. Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering. And we now have charges of murder against Tyree Nichols. So the idea that uh, this is simply something black families make up along the way, as opposed to the evidence we have now of body cameras, is is important for all of us to acknowledge and reckon with that this is a integral and unfortunate part of American society. To the Senator Tim Scott, um, he did work with Senator Cory Booker very closely on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Unfortunately, he would not move on qualified immunity and very much in favor of what police unions want, which is to protect police officers from any sense of prosecution. There is no meaningful police reform without holding police officers and police unions accountable.
12: I will say... Qualified immunity is that it is qualified. That's the whole purpose. And I do Mm -hmm. take issue with you saying that people... uh, don't believe uh, that black families are impacted by this I think that that's very not true of, of how people are viewing this I think in terms of the again the the numbers the the police the focus of all this media interest uh, what about the people whose black lives who are killed again 10,000 black lives who are killed uh, by other civilians I mean the reason why the police are here is because these these cities are dangerous and the 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 fact of the matter is it the, the you've on camera, Nancy Pelosi, Kamala Harris, many, many leaders within the Democrat Party have endorsed uh, this idea of defunding the police. And you're seeing in well, across the country that— uh, I, I do. I, don't, I want to interject, that, Carrie. I,
0: I hate to interrupt you again, but I didn't hear Naira say the comment that you made. And I also want to be clear um, that when you're talking about the notion of um, what about black lives that are lost in the hands of crime— I think you missed the mark nearly entirely because the focus of the police reform conversations, you're drawing a false equivalent between the idea about what a police officer and the Fourth Amendment violation looks like and a separate issue and apart from crime, because I'm sure you would understand and realize that, unfortunately, violent crime has an impact on more than just simply one race. And so are we not to look at what happens to white and Latino and Asian victims as well? Because we're also talking about police reform. I think that's the embodiment of being able to walk and chew gum at the same time. But I want to walk and chew gum and listen to an economist as well for a moment because I want to bring in CNN economics and political commentator Catherine Rampell because, frankly, I'm not going to pretend to know about what's happening with all the measures in the economy. Perhaps police reform, I know, but you're the expert when it comes to this area. And I'd love to understand a little bit more about this very important issue today. Catherine, look, high job numbers, unprecedented. And then yet there are concerns about fears anyway of recession. Break it down for us. Catherine, are you there? I'm not hearing her. Oh, she froze for a second. But you know what? I want to hear this part, so I don't want to give her short shrift. And as you can see from the time, and you've probably seen a little bit of a box on the right of your screen at Jump Points today, we're looking forward to a great conversation with none other than Bill Maher and his overtime. So let's go to a quick break. We're going to come back, pick up where we left off, and have these important conversations and expand them even more. We'll be right back. Well, we're back and I want to bring in now CNN economics and politics commentator, Catherine Rampell, hoping you can make sense of a lot of what we have seen and heard today. Um, Although I won't ask about the spy balloon, my friend, don't worry about that. (laughs) Instead, I want you to try to make sense of and help us understand these blockbuster job numbers that came in. What do they mean? And why are we still seeing maybe signs that a recession might not be on the horizon now? It's a good thing.
13: Yeah. You know, it was astonishing. The numbers came in much stronger than expected, stronger than they have been for the past six months, in fact. Um, And it's a little bit of a puzzle about why, especially given that there have been these headlines about layoffs in Silicon Valley, in media, um, in FedEx, warehousing, that sort of thing. So there have been a lot of high-profile layoffs, but they're just not showing up in the numbers, um, possibly because everywhere else in the economy – Uh, employers are still desperate for workers and are either hiring up or holding on to the workers that they already have when they might otherwise perhaps uh, decide to downsize. Uh, So it was a big surprise. It was a good surprise, to be clear, but it was a big surprise.
0: I do wonder if the numbers, I mean, can be duplicated. Obviously, it's very, they're shocking. I mean, journalists seem to have run out of synonyms for astonishing, astounding. I mean, you ran down, it was a, a thesaurus Google search all day long and trying to describe it. I do wonder if it can be replicated. But we do know something that has been repeated, and that is the Federal Reserve. They have raised interest rates, Catherine, eight consecutive times to cool this economy. Does
13: this job
0: news mean that more rate hikes might be coming?
13: Uh, That's part of the reason why it's been so puzzling. Normally, you would expect with the rate hikes that you referenced that the economy would be cooling. The labor market, in fact, would be slowing down. Uh, And instead, that's not happening, or at least we have a bunch of recent reports suggesting that, in fact, the the job market might be heating up. Um, I do think that there is a risk that the Federal Reserve looks at this report and says, hmm, maybe we're not out of the woods yet. Maybe it will be difficult, difficult, more difficult than we had anticipated to get inflation down further because there's so much demand for labor and there's still a lot of upward pressure on wages. Uh, But we don't know yet. Uh, I think the Fed would be happy to have inflation continue coming down with this level of job growth. But I'm not sure that that's a bundle of uh, of outcomes that's available. (laughs) So it is possible we'll see higher rate hikes in the months ahead, possibly in response to these numbers.
0: I do wonder, um, I mean, you heard President Biden taking a kind of victory lap. And I mean, it, there's no surprise why. These numbers were amazing, astounding, stupendous, as they say. Um, and they, it is ahead of State of the Union on Tuesday. So I'm sure he, he would very much love to tout this, especially given approval ratings and that people really want to have the job numbers increase. But there is still inflation. And the average person will still look in their grocery cart and say, how much do these eggs cost? How much does this cost? How much is my gas? How much is the cost of living more broadly? I mean, is he celebrating too soon?
13: I think there is a risk of appearing a little bit tone deaf. To be clear, things like egg prices going up are not the president's fault. We had an avian flu. A lot of chickens died. Uh, But nonetheless, if the president takes credit for some major macroeconomic trends, um, he's asking the public to give him blame for some other ones, even if he's not necessarily entirely responsible for either, But yeah, obviously, he's going to tout these numbers. He's going to celebrate the fact that inflation is, is not, a, uh, you know, it hasn't disappeared, but it is moderating. It's not as bad as it had been. And there's hope that it could continue to come down further. But look, there are still a lot of risks on the horizon here. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with the war in Ukraine. You could see major disruptions again, if we're unlucky, um, in energy markets or other commodity markets. We don't know what's going to happen with the debt ceiling. That could be an unforced crisis mm. that causes a lot of economic and financial market pain. So, you know, I I think it's a little bit premature to take a victory lap for anyone, whether you are the president or anyone else. But sure, celebrate the wins uh, as we see them coming in But maintain, you know, a little bit of cautiousness about the outlook going forward and the risks that the country still faces.
0: Well, first of all, um, you know, people will still blame the eggs on Biden. I mean, just remember the whole Obama notion. I mean, I don't don't know what you're talking about. Number two, looking ahead to the Grammys on Sunday, I think Beyonce can probably take a victory lap already. Just putting that out there as part of the conversation. But who knows, (laughs) Catherine Rempel, so nice to talk to you tonight. Thanks for clearing a lot of this up. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, everyone, up next, we are, we've got something pretty special for you tonight. The CNN debut of HBO's Overtime with Bill Maher. Stick around. And now I'm going to turn it over to our friends at HBO for a new segment on our show. Each week, following Real Time with Bill Maher, Bill and his guests answer viewer questions and bring their unique perspectives, the topics that are driving the national conversation. We're so excited to bring you this lively discussion first every Friday night. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Overtime with Bill Maher.
14: All right, here we are on Overtime. We're on. (laughs) We really on CNN now. CNN. What did they go nuts? (laughs) We're putting us on there, but no. We're. I'm thrilled. The world needs a good CNN, so I'm very happy that we can help out any way we can. Uh, So we have Brett Stevens of the New York Times is back. Congressman Ruben Gallego and the chief of police of Minneapolis. Not anymore, right? Madera and Rondo is really the name they call you, isn't yes, it? Rondo, yes. like Ray John Rondo. I love that name. Don't have his jumper. No, you don't. <laughs> so the course, first question is for you. Do police need better training in de-escalation tactics? Obviously a question on a lot of people's mind this week.
7: You know, <clears throat> the actuality is that uh, police are getting some of the finest training uh, that they can possibly get. I think when situations occur, like in Memphis... Uh, It certainly makes people want to resort to, well, it's the training. And at some point in time, we just have to call it, it ain't the training. It's
14: the character of the individual doing this thing. Really? It looks like the training sucks, too, though, sometimes. (laughs) We are are constantly improving training, seriously. Okay, but, like, why always firing the whole clip? You know, I mean... uh, I remember reading some statistic, I forget what year it was, maybe it was like 10, 15 years ago, like the entire nation of Germany, like the police shot 89 bullets in a year. Whereas like, that's like one, (laughs) one instance, and they're all just firing the whole clip. It seems like once the firing begins, there's no like, okay. They are, you know, police departments are really doing a a much better job in terms
7: of of, of use of force training. The de-escalation piece is the critical, most important piece because we never want our officers uh, to get into a situation where they may have to use deadly force but actually the training uh, is, is really good. We just have to really start making sure we're focusing on the quality of the
14: individual who's wearing that uniform. Okay. So this is for you. If you uh, by the way... But the people who are seeing this for the first time, these are the these are from the people. Oh boy! But these questions, I don't even know what these questions are. I really don't. I sound like a magician here, but uh, <laughs> we, we've never met, have we? Uh, this is this is for you, Representative Gallego. Why are Republicans gaining ground with Hispanic voters? Oh, oh
15: yeah. Yeah. Well, look, it depends where <laughs> it depends where what state you're talking about. In Arizona, that's not the case. In Florida, uh, it's uh, definitely the case. In Texas, nationally, it's, I think it is. Mix. It's a mixed
14: bag. Um, the reason why... Well, Trump did better even after <laughs> they're all rapists. Yeah. But not in 2016. Come, yeah. but, in 2020. Yeah. I mean, what the, the heck is yeah, going the biggest, on there? The biggest
15: point, that uh, the reason why this is happening is because Democrats also need to respond to the fact that Latinos are working class. And they have aspirations. Mm. They want to be rich. They want to be small business owners. They want to own a home. And a lot of times we just kind of gloss over them and we treat them as if they're just any other voting demographic. If we don't talk to them, we don't actually deliver programs for them, you will start losing them. First you lose them to non-voters, and then they start voting for Republicans, because at least they have some other vision. But it has to be an active campaign. We actually have to talk to them about the American dream, about how they can be part of the American dream. And sometimes we don't do that. And and that's how we end up losing. But it's also because...
16: it's, It's also because... Latinos think for themselves. I mean, we have this like, oh, you're a you belong to demographic X, so you're a natural constituency for party Y. That's just not the way in which people operate. They're not they're not like, oh, I'm a demographic and therefore I must vote for this this particular party. I mean, I grew up in Mexico City. My father was from Mexico. You know, even the very term Latino is so misleading. It's so wildly misleading between what well, we don't assume that a Brit is an American, is a Canadian, is Australian, but we somehow do assume that a Mexican is, a, is, a, is an Ecuadorian, is an Argentinian, oh, right. is a Dominican. Uh, and so, you know, learn what this community is about. I ap- absolutely agree with with, with Ruben that, that like it's an immigrant community, and Instead immigrant an communities are aspirational. And if you have a Republican Party that's saying we're going to make it easier for your small business to operate by not charging you 1.7 million dollars for golden toilets or whatever the case may be, right? They're going to respond to that Republican message. They're also very Christian and increasingly
15: evangelical. Uh, I would say, like, just go, a couple of things, right? I think it's a it's a big, big, big misconception that you know the the. Latinos, and I, and I do call them because it's a shared culture, is that, uh, that they're very religious. Uh, if you see some of the younger voters, um, they are religious in the sense that they're, they're Catholic, most of them, but they vote uh, in a very, very liberal manner. But also Latinos vote in very different manners. It, does, it depends when you came here, depends how old you are, depends how rich you are, or how poor you are. And the, the problem with Democrats is that we do treat them as one big monolith, and we only talk to them with about two months left in the election. When you really need to be talking to them from day one, and you're right, not assuming just because they're brown or, or have a last name that, you know, ends in a vowel, that they're automatically going to vote for that. We have to earn that.
14: We have to earn it. And we have to earn it every cycle. I noticed they do. There is a lot of, besides what you're talking about, that kind of lumping, there's also a lot of brown and black. Mm-hmm. I hear that term a lot in, when politicians talk. Yeah. Is it, it's, is it's a, it, a
16: made-up it... white thing. <laughs>
15: <laughs> wow. I do I go uh, <laughs> oh, So what are you saying about brown and black people? Um, uh, yes, I mean, yeah. I just,
14: I, just I, I feel like they do that. Yeah, they, they, because,
16: because obviously someone who comes from an upper-class family in India has everything in common with someone who comes from a I don't know, a working-class family in the Yucatan. I mean, yeah. it's, o- it's only something that essentially an inherently racist assumption that anyone who's a slightly darker skin tone than you has something in common and they belong in an acronym. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And, it's, yeah. and it's the condescension of... Right, it, I think this is a fatal flaw for the left, this kind of condescending view of other people. Well, you're, in the, you're part of the BIPOC community. I think the last people who know what the BIPOC community is, right. is the BIPOC community. <laughs>
15: <laughs> I, do, I do think that there is there has to be some, some you know, at least uh, understanding, like, at least there's an, an actual outreach that's actually happening. And there's an attempt at least of respect for that. Now, you have the flip side, you know, we're, we're trashing Democrats. And then at the same time, we have a party that has not also been great to to Latinos, you know. We're trashing everyone here. All right, well, let's trash away. But, you know, I grew up up in Arizona. I was there for SB 1070. I was there for Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And there was a lot of opportunities where Republicans had an opportunity to actually reach out to Democrats or to Latinos, and they lost that. And they lost that because of those types of actions. Uh, And so, yeah, sometimes there is this, like, uh, language overreach that is designed to do, uh, you know, try to get people into your coalition while avoiding some of the real issues that are happening. But it happens on either side. And, and okay. you know, I'll give you a good example. I, I've, I, you know, now that I recently announced I'm running for Senate, I'll, you know, once in a while I'll get a Twitter you know, message that, hey, well, why am I going to vote for something that's owned by the cartels? Or you should be president, uh, you should be a senator in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Like, I was born in this country. I served my country, and yet I still get, you know, accused of not being a, a true American. And it's, it's disgusting. and It's coming from the conservative right.
14: Yeah, it is gross. Okay, uh, this is for the whole panel. Is Kevin McCarthy, who's your new leader in Congress, not yours... He's something, yeah. He's something. <laughs> well, he's the, he's, the, uh, he's the leader in the House. Yeah, yeah, he's I mean, the, yeah. It took 15 ballots, right, which is almost unheard of. It, has Kevin McCarthy already made too many concessions to be an effective leader of his party? Well, I guess for people who haven't followed the story, Kevin McCarthy who is a very far-right Republican, in my view, still was not conservative enough for, like, the 20 really, really, really right people in the Republican uh, caucus, yeah. and they stopped him until they made him... I mean, I think they did everything but make him wear the Viking hat. <laughs> I, 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 the dunce cap. The, the dunce, <laughs> dunce cap. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but, like... I, I think one person can, can get rid of him by objecting to something he does. I mean, how can this function?
16: Because the Republican Party basically is split, split between uh, reptiles and invertebrates, right? I mean, <laughs> you've got the Marjorie Taylor Greene. I know uh, there's some honorable exceptions. I'm generalizing. Yep. But what, what, what Kevin McCarthy said is, I will do anything to be Speaker. I will agree to any compromise. Right. At some point, he should have said, you know, take this job, Marjorie, and shove it. Let's give it to Hakeem Jeffries if this is the way you want to play. And then they would have backed out. Um, and the spinelessness that he, the, the, the tone he set right there is going to be the tone of this Congress for the next two years. Look,
15: it, it is dangerous. Like, I'm afraid that he's going to get us into a debt limit situation where we're going to end up, you know, tanking the world economy because he gave up so much power to them to have this title. Right. But the, it's a title now. That's all it is. It has no right. power. More importantly, now he has very zero responsibility, but he's going to end up, and the country ends up dealing with the consequences of that. Uh, right. it, was not a, it was not a great study in leadership, which none of us should be surprised uh, by, but, it, you know, right. it is what we're
14: dealing but, with right but, now. But let's hope the economy won't be tanked. Yes. Can I Thank have you. one question, very yes, briefly? Yes, very quickly.
16: Rondo. Yes. What percentage of cops are good cops?
2: Old. <laughs>
7: The, the 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 vast majority of the men and women who put on that uniform and serve their communities Okay, but he said
14: so. 99.5 in the show. I I, so I don't know if we poor. could I don't know how it's just a number we don't It was a figure have. of speech. It I was mean, that's not a figure of speech, that's right. a number. It was it was intended that way. It was intended that way. All right. We got to go. Thank you very much.
0: You can watch Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday nights on HBO at 10 p.m. and then watch Overtime right here on CNN Friday nights at 11.30. We'll be right back. It's the dress that first broke the Internet, or rather made it into what we know today. That's right. The dress that Jennifer Lopez wore at the 2000 Grammy Awards eventually led to the invention of Google image search. The former Google CEO and executive chairman Eric Schmidt spoke about this in 2015, saying, quote, people wanted more than just text, but we had no surefire way of getting users exactly what they wanted. Lo wearing that dress. Google image search was born. And just like that, everyone, the Internet changed forever. Joining me now CNN contributor, Nichelle Turner. I'm so glad that you're here with me today, Nichelle. I mean, you've been covering the entertainment space for a long time. I bet most people had no idea the impact of that dress to actually rethink the way we have Google search imaging as well. But just take me back that time. What was it like Mm -hmm. at that moment, remembering that moment in 2000, which I can't believe was 23 years ago now? Take me back there. Right.
5: Well, first of all, it didn't lead me to Google image search, but it did lead me to the gym, like a lot of other people. (laughs) When we all saw that dress, I think our collective mouths dropped open. It was such a moment um, because it was, you know, Jennifer Lopez was really kind of transforming into the A-lister that we know her now. And that night cemented it for her. She was still dating at the time Sean Puffy Combs, or now as he calls himself, Brother Love. and that it was kind of like a coming out moment for, for them. And I remember, you know, hearing her talk about what he thought when she he first saw her and what he and also hearing him talk about what he thought when he first saw her. And I mean it it was daring. It was gorgeous. I remember there was a lot of conversation. Can people show it? Do they need ribbons? Like, what can we show? Now, I mean, you know, it, it, it's pretty much tame, we think. But at the time, it was one of the most daring things that we've seen. And then, you know, to, to add insult to injury to all of us who are <laughs> out here trying to look a little bit like Jayla's, you know, 20 years later, she wore a version of the dress again and looked just as incredible as she did 23
0: years ago. There are some bracelets I can't wear from 20 years ago, Michelle Turner. Let me just (laughs) girl. (laughs) Let me tell you that. Thank you very much. That's okay. (laughs) The camera's only this part of the box. I'm okay with all of it. But you know, the idea of thinking about that it really changed even it sparked the idea of look, people Mm -hmm. wanted to see it so badly that it changed the way that technology kept pace with it. I had no idea, and here we are on the eve practically of the new grammys coming up this sunday and a different type of history is going to likely be made let's just talk about who are the people who are the true contenders here if we can for a moment because this year's show is going to air on sunday and here are the nominees for album of the year by the way and i wonder what who you think is going to take the top prize let's put it on the screen for everyone to see the same the albums of the year you've got um, Adele is in there, B- Bunny, Beyonce, Mary J, Lizzo, Harry Styles, Kendrick. Cole, I mean, you have a lot of people in there, all of them heavy very hitters. heavy hitters. So who do you think is going to take home the Coveted Prize?
5: Well, you know, the conversation is becoming a tale of two women uh, in this category uh, for a lot of people. And people are saying, once again, you're going to have Beyonce and Adele going head to head for album of the year. But, you know, I mean, Harry Styles has has. Uh, gotten a chokehold on all of us. And what he's doing in the music space is really kind of transformative uh, all the way around. So I I don't think you can really count him out. And then you have people like Lizzo, who sings from the bottom of her feet to the tip of her head in everything that she does. And you have Bad Bunny, who's like the the most streamed and most selling artist uh, that's out there right now. So I think that people expect it to be a pretty good night for Beyonce. I mean, she's on the verge of becoming the most decorated artist in Grammy history. She's nominated for nine Grammys. If she takes home four of them, she will break that record. One of the categories, she's up against her husband, Jay-Z. So that should be really interesting to see, you know, how that goes there. But um, you know, everybody's waiting and wondering and, and, and you know, seeing if this will actually be, once again, the year of Beyonce, the renaissance for her.
0: Well, we shall see. And of course, I'm sure on Congress and Capitol Hill, they're looking at Ticketmaster to figure out how those renaissance tickets are going to actually come through. A lot going on, Ooh. Michelle, in all these yeah. areas. We'll see you soon in covering the Grammys, I'm very sure. Everyone, thank you. And listen, uh, once in a lifetime spotting, a green comet last seen in the Stone Age, as in Stonehenge people, making its way around the Earth. I'm going to tell you about it next. Well, the Chinese spy balloon over the U.S. definitely qualifies as a photo of the week But tonight, we actually have another one, and it's really exciting. I want you to look closely. The photo shows a green-hued comet passing over Stonehenge. Of course, that's the ancient stone monument in England. Now, the comet is estimated to be more than 26 million miles from Earth, and that's at its closest. And get this. Astronomers say the last time this comet was actually visible in the night sky was during the Stone Age, about 50,000 years ago. I don't want to confuse everyone. Stonehenge was not built during the Stone Age. Archaeologists say it's only about 5,000 years old. But back to the comet, astronomers say that it passes by Earth only once every 50,000 years because its orbit around the sun takes it to the outer reaches of our solar system. That's a picture worth looking at. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Our coverage continues.